Stacey Marco Matos is recounting the day he says he killed his ex-girlfriend, her parents, and her boyfriend in front of a little boy. He testified he tried to bury them, but couldn't dig a hole big enough. I wanted to get the bodies away from the house. Um, I didn't want Tristan being exposed to all the blood and the bodies and the smell. So I attempted to put them in a van. His, Tristan is his son, and he was four years old at the time of the murders. Matos is claiming self-defense in the murders, saying he was paranoid after getting into a fight with his ex-girlfriend's father and her new boyfriend. On the stand right now, he's telling the jury his account of that day, and as you just heard, he says he attempted to move the bodies. At one point, he says he tied their hands together with zip ties and then tied a rope around their midsection. The location where you took the bodies, why was it so close to the house where you lived? I didn't, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do with them, so I didn't want to leave Tristan alone for a long period of time, so I just picked a random spot. Now, he's calling the whole experience, quote, very disturbing to him. He wanted it to be over, and that's why he explains he dumped the bodies where he did. Of course, we'll be monitoring this testimony, and we'll keep you updated. If convicted, he faces the death penalty. Marco? Wow. All right. Shocking uh, testimony there from the stand. Avery, thank you. Welcome to uh, Outline of a Murder, the Smart True Crime Podcast. I am your host, and I am with a woman who is so no-nonsense that Judge Judy would be proud. Mom. (laughs) Hello this evening. This is episode... Five. Four. Five. Mm. We're on five. Season two. Yes. And we drop them all together at one time so people can just binge and listen. This case, as you heard, it has another child involved like the Kelly. I know. I hate that. I hate those parts. I do too. It is scary what happened and depraved. Have you heard of the House of Horrors case? I have heard of it. When when I heard the details, when well, I'm not going to divulge anything. Well, you can go into a little bit because we'll we'll dive in. When they were talking about the murders Mm -hmm. at the house, Mm -hmm. and that he was like, I don't know why anyone doesn't believe me. Right, right. And the um, what is so sad is obviously the little boy um, seeing everything that occurred, but also. The fact that, I mean, she was just so beautiful. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous. Not to say, you know, if she wasn't, that'd be no. sadder. But just that her spirit, like the whole family was beautiful. Like it's not like a, a looks thing, although she is physically beautiful. But it was, the whole family just had this kindness. And that was actually their downfall. What I did like, though, made me feel good as a child. Yeah. Is grown, yeah, not an adult, but and he's doing so well. He's doing really good in the clip. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this one actually begins in Pennsylvania. Wait a minute, it ends in oh, 
Wow. We have wine every time we do one. Yes. And, and she's just trying to I did. go right over it. Well, actually, she did go right over it. I did. I went straight. You know what happened, though? I started off different. I started off with a, a video of what all was happening. And then me and you had to watch my husband Be quiet. slowly open a door that's squeaky and then squeeze his belly through and you know this is like serious business and we're over here trying not to collapse hysterically right i kept trying to see if she would pause yeah i'm sure you guys can hear the door squeaking you can't see it's quite the visual yes but you could hear the door it was very interesting and so that's you know i'm off my game i'm off my game i apologize okay so we're you know here's the deal though We've done five episodes, and every single episode has been Stella Rosa. (laughs) Five glasses of wine. Now, the thing is, is that I love Stella Rosa. We're both newbies to wine. I do like me some good cab, things like that. I wanted to... here's Here's what we've done for the wine, which, by the way, you can contribute to the wine fund. The or reason, any suggestions that you have yeah, of cases, a wine. Oh, and a wine. Mm-hmm. And cases, or cases that, yeah. of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we've had five glasses of wine. So cases of, of murders, murders or wine. Or, or wine, yes. Okay. The reason we're doing Celerosa, though, is you are a wine weenie. I am. I'm like sweet. I do. And, you know, we were going to have our third sidekick, my sister, on this season, but she couldn't do it. So, me being the good daughter that I am. You are. I decided to get you things I knew you would like. However, you have disappointed me because you rated the apple as a 2.5, which is BS. 3.5. Whatever. You said I needed to throw it out. Then you rated the semi-sweet red, which you said, oh, yeah, this is yummy. It was good. A three. A three. You rated yours 4.25. Uh-huh. Rate your wine. And that you've apple had what we have. was a five. Now, I want you to take a drink of this blueberry. Apple wasn't a five. Mine was. My rating was a five. All take right. a drink of the blueberry and tell me what you think. Blueberry Stella Rosa. Rating of a three. I can agree with that. I think it's like a 2.5, actually. I mean, there's a hint of blueberry, but it has a sour taste. Yeah, I don't like sour. Some of you out there might like the Stella Rosa. I do. It's all all pretty good, but I don't like the blueberries. And for those that are wine connoisseurs, I just apologize that we're actually having Stella Rosa versus what would be, air quotes, real wine. All right. So you, you said a three- is what you said yeah. for this one? Okay, I can agree with that. I wrote it down. Finally. Okay, now, back to the case. It begins in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, which is officially a part of Allentown, Bethlehem East. I Didn't have no idea. did we just do one in Pennsylvania? Mm-hmm. Episode one, I think, or two? I think it was three. Three? Okay. And it's a weird deal here. It's a Pennsylvania, New Jersey metropolitan statistical area. Or they call it the Valley. So it's a metro region that includes counties in eastern Pennsylvania and northwestern New Jersey, which I thought was yeah, interesting. It's very so close. it's like it's, I guess, all grown together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lehigh Valley, 
I, I hope it's called that, not Lahay. Lahai Valley is the third most populous metro area in Pennsylvania with a population of 821,000 plus residents. I was going to say, if it's that close to New Jersey, it had to be big. Yeah, so it's definitely big. And then Philly and Pittsburgh are the other two most populated areas. So it's it's big. The reason I'm bringing this up is out of all those people, out of 821,000 people, Megan Brown meets the one guy that would the bring one. such death to her family. Like that, that to me is the craziness about these cases. You know, you meet someone, you never, ever, ever think it's going to end up in not only your death, but your parents' death mm-hmm. and your new boyfriend's death. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's just crazy. And so it shows that what can seem innocent, what can seem good, can sometimes turn out really, really bad. Megan Brown was Greg and Margaret, and they called her Maggie, youngest child and only daughter. Greg was an architectural and engineer exec, and Mac took, Maggie took care of the property, their three children, and all the animals. So I guess Uh-oh. she was an she animal lover. Animals. It seems Maggie uh, bred dogs, though. Like, it was a professional deal. She made money with them. And not sure if she did it here in Florida where they moved or, you know, if she only did it in Pennsylvania. But I'm assuming she did it in both places. I think she did. If I remember this case, I think she did. Because he sold some of the dogs. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, Megan was a pride of the family. And I bet her big brothers watched out for her. Yeah. You know. Of course. She was a medal-winning track and field star. She attended Pennsylvania you State University. Mm-hmm. She won a medal? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. She was smart, beautiful, and a hard worker. And they were all very, very close. They lived a very simple life. And so this is here, her with her son. She's beautiful. These pictures are also on the website. She's beautiful. And then that's her with her parents. And I think her brother. That's her brother right there. She looks like her brother. And then that's her with her little boy. Oh. And then that's her new boyfriend, <clears throat> who kind of looks like Frank Spencer to me. Yeah. Just a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. And there's her parents there. So they were like just, again, beautiful people, the salt of the earth, and um, very nurturing. They wanted to take care of people. In all the pictures, she's smiling the most when she had her son around. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, I noticed that too. In her early 20s, Megan met Adam Mattis, or Matos, an aspiring avant-garde DJ, which I'm like, what the heck is that? What is that? I know DJ. Right. Because I'm like from, I'm an 80s kid, so I had no idea. It seems that avant-garde music is music that, quotes, rejects the status quo in favor of unique or original Elements and the idea of deliberately challenging or alienating audiences. So it's music that alienates that people don't like. I don't. <laughs> if any of you know what avant-garde music is, we would love to hear about it. Yes. But this is uh, an, an example, and I don't want to say the name or anything. No, no, no. Um, but How you like my dancing? Pretty good. Thank you. I think I should do this for a living. Nope. I know I can. Now it's annoying. That's all of it is? I mean, there's no singing? 
But I mean, this music is all of it's like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he was an avant-garde DJ, and that's that's what he did. So I guess maybe you know in um, clubs and things like that, he would do the music. How old is he? He was definitely in his twenties. I'm not sure I'm if they sure were. I'm sure she was also. Yeah, she was. Uh, I'm not sure what was alienating about that, but anyhow, I, I don't either. That's what Adam Matos did. He was also in his early twenties. They started dating, and before long, Megan was pregnant with his child. Megan and her family were super, super excited to have a grandbaby. But it seems that the relationship was in trouble because after she gave birth to a baby boy that they named Tristan, Megan reunited with Adam for the sake of Tristan, but who was autistic. He right. needed extra care, but at some point they had broken up fully. But yeah, he, he was on the, the spectrum, and uh, I'm not sure how severe it was, but he definitely had to have help, or she definitely needed to have help with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, now, here's where it can kind of get a little bit messy because I couldn't figure out, did they try to get back together just for the sake of Tristan's autism or were they trying to make it work because maybe they still had feelings? You and, mean when they moved or before? Well, even before, because it seemed rocky before they moved. But the reason I'm wondering that is she had a very strong support system with her parents. She did. But I do remember that she did go back one more time, and it was the final time. I think she only went back one time. Yes. But you'll get to what happens after that. Even though they weren't together, what they decided yes, to do Yes, which is was amazing. fatal. Yeah, it was... Fatal. <clears throat> okay. It was naive also. I mean, yes. not that it's the victim's fault. That's not what I'm saying. It just shows you how kind that they are and the parents. And I wondered if part of it was also the value on a family that they had. You know, maybe Megan was like, I'm going to stay with this guy because this is Tristan's dad. Mm -hmm. And he needs a, a family that's, you know, together. <laughs> together. But I wonder know, if maybe that was part of it. That's never a good reason. No, ever. Because if it's bad, it's, it's going to be stay bad, bad no mm -hmm. matter what you do. Or get worse. Some get pregnant. Oh, this will change. Some go back and forth. It's not going to change. And I also think that they did want Tristan to have his dad in his life. You know, they, they didn't want to alienate them. Do it from afar. Right. We can visit. It's right. never good. The bad thing about staying with someone that's like this, which you'll hear about soon, is when you have a child, they see it. Mm -hmm. So you think, you're oh, because I'm going to stay, because I need him to have his father. But they see that. Yeah. They see all the bad stuff. And that isn't healthy. No, it's not. Not for the child, especially. Yeah. But a lot of people, I hear that a lot in some of these cases. Well, I wanted to keep the family together. Well, I wanted him to have his father or she. And then sometimes you see that later the kids wish they would have divorced. Oh, yeah. They didn't like living in all of that and all of that tension. Mm -hmm. And regardless of why they got back together, it wasn't long after that her dad, Greg, decided to retire. Right. Sell the farm and move to Florida mm -hmm. with his wife, Maggie. Megan and Tristan joined them. And Adam moved with them as well into the family house with the family's blessing. 
They were uh, having their dream home built. So everyone lived together in a waterfront rental at Hatteras Drive in Hudson, a town about 20 miles north of Tampa. Now, I remember seeing why. Do you, you have it why they did that? Well, again, to try to keep the family together well, and to help with Tristan. On the um, show, they did it because the parents felt, they felt sorry for him. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have anywhere to go, he claimed. So they thought, well, they'll bring him, but you have to work, you have to help, you have to do these different things. And he agreed to it and... Didn't. But I wonder, I don't know, I can't remember if there was a signs of abuse before they left. Because if there was, you know, why would you bring him along? I don't think there was. But what I do know is they knew he was lazy. They knew he was, oh, you know. Did. But sometimes people are so forgiving and and so helpful that actually it can put you in danger. It can. But, but again, again, that goes back to what we were talking about. You just don't think right. the circumstances that happen is going to happen yeah you don't think you're going to get killed for being nice right exactly so they move away he goes with them and everybody's supposed to help out with rent like you said he was supposed to work they're supposed to help out with rent maggie got a job at a convenience store and megan started waitressing at a local local bar and adam briefly worked in a restaurant kitchen before being fired now i do know this though they were permanently, as far as I know, broke up at that time. Yes. It was just an agreement. He was coming. He had to get a job, get on his feet, find mm-hmm. his own place. Yeah, they were not yeah, together, they weren't together by the time he retired. Mm-hmm. and But they, again, wanted to keep the family unit together mm-hmm. for Tristan's sake. And then he needed to help out with the bills. Uh, so he gets fired from the restaurant, and it appears that tensions were pretty high. Adam was sleeping in a separate room. And it sounds like that was from the beginning. It was. But it can be confusing because there's a couple of of accounts. But I think they were definitely apart. Greg and Maggie's patience was growing thin as well. And from what I could find out, it appears that Adam was lazy and mooching off of a decent family. Mm -hmm. And Megan was tired of it and she was moving on. She started going out with a group of new friends, leaving Adam at home with Tristan. From what I could find out, it seems that Maggie was staying out until the early hours of the morning after she got off work, and this caused a lot of fights. Adam grew more and more jealous and wanted to know what Maggie was doing and who with. His rage finally exploded in 2014 when he showed up one morning around dawn. We heard a Mm -hmm. little bit of the 911 call. Don't you think it is a little unusual, again, not blaming her? But when you're dating and your ex, it's never a good idea well, to live there and then go out on dates when you know he's a jealous person. And I don't want a victim shame, but no, no. it did bother me how late she was staying out and how often. Because, number one, it is a volatile situation, which she obviously didn't realize how bad. Mm-hmm. The other thing is... And I'm not excusing him at all. He was insane. No, he, he was. And not insane as in criminally insane. He's just, he's a poop bird. Yeah, he is. But I, if I was him, I wouldn't want to be watching the sun either while my ex-girlfriend goes out at all hours. But he had the option to leave. He did. He didn't probably have the money. Right. But by then you would hope. I don't know. They weren't there very long. They weren't there very so long at all. I don't know all. if he didn't have any friends or anywhere to go. It doesn't sound like he did. Yeah, the the only thing he had was them. But I would never do that, even when I was younger. Again, not shaming her. I'm not. Right. Because I would be scared. I wouldn't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just... You never know. You just don't know. 
<clears throat> it's hard to hear on the 911 call, but here's the basics. Megan came home late, you know, early in the morning right. again, and Adam put a knife to her throat and cut her hand. She was bleeding everywhere, and her son Tristan apparently witnessed it and was crying. He was upset, which I'm sure heightened since he was autistic, and you can hear her crying and the fear in her voice. Police get to the house, and they discover Megan bleeding from hand wounds that she got from struggling to get the knife away from Adam, who left before the police got there. Of course he did. Megan was terrified, and she was afraid that he would come back angrier than before, which makes me wonder if he was abusive before, or if there were, like, threats that were made, because... She was really nervous calling the cops because she was afraid it would make it worse. And that's usually seen in people that are scared. I know, if I remember right, this isn't 100%, but I think he was more verbal. Mm -hmm. Because I don't remember, yeah, a lot of physical, but I could be wrong. This is a picture of her right after the attack. So you could tell she's upset, she's been crying. And then this is a picture of her thumb. And so it looks like he, it was sliced open when she was fighting for the, the knife. This is a serious es- escalation. Oh, yeah. You know, this is very, and very serious. One. Very quick. Very quick. Uh, so all of that happens, and um, days went by, and things seemed calm. You know, the cops come. They get the report. They're trying to find Adam. Tempers are down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're hoping maybe this was just a one-off domestic violence. The family will take care of it. You got the dad there. You know, hopefully everybody will be safe and sound. But relatives begin calling the police because, remember, they moved from Pennsylvania. And their relatives from there had been trying to get a hold of them, but no one had been able to reach any of them by text or phone for six days. Oh, six days. Mm Mm-hmm. Cops arrive, and it seems that no one's home, but they're concerned because they smell the very distinct smell Mm -hmm. of death. They also noticed a door was left open leading to the garage where the family vehicle was parked, and on the ground are blankets and what appears to be blood. In the meantime, a very good cop was driving by a wooded area not far from the crime scene, about less than a mile, and he smelled death. So he's driving by, and he smells it. So he stops. He called what a on top of the. Yes. Wow. He called the Pasco County Sheriff Detective Chet Cogill or Cowgill, probably Cowgill, who was at the house. So he's at the house. Mm -hmm. They smell decaying bodies. This guy is driving less than a mile down from the house, probably going to the house. And he smells death. So he contacts the detective at the house and says, hey, I think we've got some more bodies out here. And I don't want to get too graphic. No, I also think the father, he had a gun. He did. And we'll get into that. Yes, okay. But here's what happened. So they found a pile of bodies that were decomposing beyond recognition. They couldn't tell how many bodies were piled together because of it. And it appears that when you put bodies together like that, it causes the decaying to happen faster like a melting pot I yes mean, just, and, yeah and what what time of year this was was it summer oh i don't I mean, know but florida itself it's is usually warm, warm and humid yeah yeah that i'm sure did not help and you know it's hot it's humid the medical examiner had to pick through quote 
the mound of flesh and bones to identify the bodies. uh, Detective Calgill is pretty sure that they're looking at the remains of the Brown family. And he said that it was, you know, basically common sense. There's a house with several people that are missing from it and a pile of bodies up the street. The father, the mother, the daughter. And at the time, they didn't know. They're not sure yet. And they don't know, okay, is this, obviously there's more bodies than, I think there's like four bodies. Is this Adam? You know, they're trying to figure out, okay, was he murdered? And uh, they sent all the bodies to the the medical examiner. And now they know they've got this crime scene. And it was shocking how bad it was. They get the luminol and it revealed a blood trail that went throughout the entire house, along with evidence that the killer had tried to clean it up. Because when they do that luminol, you can see like marks, like waves. The garage was also covered in uh, blood, and there was evidence in the vehicle as well. Forensics found blood and maggots inside the back of the vehicle. And if you're eating or anything, I apologize. But this is a true crime podcast, right? So maggots may come up every once in a while. Every now and then. Uh, So they found those in the back of the vehicle, which told them at at one point the bodies had been in there. Because maggots will only eat decaying flesh, right? So they knew that. Detectives also um, found a shovel in the back that had maggots on it as well. Detectives found a freshly dug area on the side of the house indicating the killer was trying to dispose of the bodies there, but you could only dig about a foot, I guess the way the soil is. The killer then loaded the already decaying bodies into the vehicle and then drove them a short distance from the house. So let me show you a couple of the uh, crime scene photos, and they're they're not too graphic, so you should be... You should be okay. Uh, goodness, let me get off my my notifications here on the computer screen. Right. Okay, so here is the pile of bodies they found outside. I used to have one of those. It, they look like you know blankets from Mexico, oh, the yeah. coarse yeah, wool yeah, ones. It does. So that's uh, one pile, and then this is a house that they rented. It's a nice he, house. It is, and here's the garage where they saw blood everywhere. And again, it's her parents here, and then um, they're trying to figure out, okay, is this Adam? Is this somebody else? Yeah. Okay, so now they're like, okay, you've got the, the maggots, you've got the, you know, crime scene with the holes, you've got the bodies. The police are obviously wanting to know where is Adam and where's Tristan? Or is Adam and Tristan one of the bodies? Right. Like, they have no idea. For all they knew, he was in the pile. But they're really worried about Tristan. They knew that Adam had fled the house when Megan called the police six days before. And I'm not sure if the police were, you know, looking too hard for him. I don't know. But they hadn't found him. But there was another suspect on the list. Nicholas Leonard. The boyfriend. Yes. Him and Megan had started seeing each other recently. In fact, Megan hadn't even told her friends and family about him yet. He was a carpenter and a landscaper. He was head over heels in love with Megan. His family knew all about her, but early in the relationship, they were asked to keep their relationship quiet until Adam moved out. See, I could see that. That tells me there's a fear there, though. You know what I mean? Like, they're. Like something's wrong with this guy and they know it and they're, and they're desperate for him to leave. 
Why didn't they kick him out? Were they scared of him? Maybe not. I mean, it could have been like, well, I don't want anyone to know. I don't want it to get back to him because it's going to be grief. It's going to be a big fight. I mean, it could be that, too. It could. It's just the way she was so scared to call the police, even though he had attacked her and she was afraid it would make it worse. But she didn't get real scared till after the knife incident. As far as we know, but that just tells me, you know, it just tells me there's something going on with him. And I think she was scared before, but I could definitely be wrong. Uh, So they keep the relationship quiet, but at some point he did find out. And regardless... Maggie and Nick kept seeing each other. They weren't going to stop. And Nick was among the friends Megan had been with the night before when she arrived home at dawn and the police were called. I'm not sure how long Adam knew they were together. I wonder if he stalked her or I wonder how he knew. He I didn't know. have friends. The parents didn't know. He might have followed her. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Well, and it didn't take long, but Nick was identified as one of the bodies in the pile. The boyfriend. Yep. The other victims were Megan, her dad, and her mom. But detectives, I mean, they're relieved that Tristan's not in there, but where is he? he? He's an autistic little boy. Where is Tristan? Have they found the father yet? Maybe he's with the father. Nope. No, they hadn't found him. And the police now are like, okay, Adam. You know, he's already attacked her with a knife. It has to be Adam. Investigators found Matos at a hotel with Tristan a week after finding the bodies. And, like any idiot criminal, he used his own name to check in. Oh, nice. Criminals are lucky. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> they're not they're smart. Stupid. They're stupid. Yeah, they're, lu- they're lucky. lucky. <laughs> yes. Or he might have knew, you know, if, he probably knew they were coming after him. I mean, why hide it? And... It might have actually not been that stupid because he would later claim he had no idea where Megan and her family was. You know, so he's like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Just me and Tristan are going on a little or you know, vacation. Said, you know, I didn't live in the house anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm watching my son, having fun, yeah. visitation. That's and true. he said that he had mm-hmm. not seen uh, them since he had attacked Megan. But detectives didn't let on that they had found the bodies. So he had no idea that they had found oh. them. They want him to think that he's being arrested for the attack on Megan a couple weeks before, right? Smart. And uh, yes, I love when we see good detective work. And let me find the um, picture of him being arrested. So this is him being arraigned. But look at this picture of him with the teeth. And the eyes, yeah, it's very interesting. I've not not researched why he was looking like that, but I thought it was a very fitting picture. Viewers need to really look at that picture. Mm -hmm. On outlineofamurderpodcast.com. And please Mm -hmm. suggest cases, you know, for season three and uh, wine. And we also do a... Wine uh, or cases of crime. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. We also do a, uh, like a... Mid, mm-hmm. mid, uh, yeah, we'll do a mini series, usually in March, that's just crime in general. You know, the purpose of these is to break them down to help people, mm-hmm. but we like discussing true crime cases. And so in March, we're going to do uh, some on historical crime, like um, Countess ba- uh, Countess Elizabeth of Bathory, the Black wait. Dahlia, H.H. H. Holmes. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, some people thought H.H. H. Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper. I don't. 
but some even thought it was um, somebody from the royal family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. They ask um, when they arrest him. They ask Adam, "Who can take care of Tristan now that he can't? Because he's arrested." That was a smart question. But he doesn't know why. Right. So far, except for the attack. For the attack. So the detective said, obviously, you know, we would like to take him back to Megan. You know if that's going to be possible. I wouldn't know. Well, Megan's parents, can he stay with them maybe? You can check. You can call and ask. Then they ask him about his troubled relationship with Megan. They said, when did you break up? He goes, a week ago. That wasn't true. No, it wasn't true. It was before But for him, Mm -hmm. see, that's why that was so dangerous what happened. And again, not blaming them. They had no idea. No. And he goes, a week ago, okay, do you remember what this was about? Just a bunch of drama, you know. So he basically denied attacking Megan. Detective said, do you know if she was seeing anybody else? He said, wouldn't know. Well, yeah, he did. And then he said her, um, he admits they got into a loud argument mm-hmm. after Megan arrived near home near dawn. Uh, he said her mother came out and she told me to leave and I left. I'm not sure if Maggie did that, but either way, he fled, I'm sure, to avoid being arrested for attacking Megan. The police lock him up and Matos finds out that the detectives have, have tricked him and they found the bodies a week earlier. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Matos gives an interview for a newspaper where he denies killing them, of course. Detectives, uh, and with detectives there, he drops a bombshell in this interview and says that Nick's jealous ex-girlfriend had killed them all. Now, of course, they have to investigate it. And, and besides that, how would he know that? And they find that actually she had been allegedly stalking Nick for years and had threatened Megan after learning that they were seeing each other, but she had an airtight alibi. So he knew that information. Like, where's he getting his information? You know? He has to be. Listening, reading text messages. Following. Maybe he was in her phone. Oh, her phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the mother did kick him out because after, you know, you just assaulted my daughter. I wouldn't let him You don't him want him live around. There. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, Tristan, I want, I want to warn you. You're probably going to get really, really angry hearing this or sad. So four-year-old Tristan witnessed the entire murder. Once he started talking again because he was so traumatized, he couldn't speak. He told investigators what he saw. He said that he heard the gunshot that killed his mommy and saying, please don't. Right before she was shot. Assistant Florida State Attorney Brian Sarabia said he grabbed a little doll And he wrapped it in a little blanket, and then he started pounding on it, saying, Mommy, Mommy. He then pointed a finger at his father and said, Daddy killed Mommy. So now they have an eyewitness to corroborate. And again, young children that young don't know how to lie yet. No. And so you can picture this scene. It's like his, you know, he sees his dad. He's got autism. He's by his mom. He hears his mom say, please don't, or he said it. I can't figure out which one. Was it him that said, please don't, or her? He sees her get killed, and then by him wrapping the baby Mm. and then pounding on it, you can imagine he was pounding on his mom to try to wake Mm -hmm. her up. That's just sad. It's it's very, very very sad. sad.
Now, here's the timeline of events from lawandcrime.com. On July 2nd, 2014, the Browns moved from Pennsylvania to Florida with Adam. They move, uh, the Browns moved to be closer to family. Matos moved to remain close to the son he had with Megan. Matos was to live with the Brown family in a house rented uh, from a Brown family acquaintance. And according to family members, Matos was supposed to get a job and chip in on rent. July 2nd, neighbor Ryan McCann, a professional captain, meets the Brown family after returning from sea. His observations of what happened on August 28th and over the following days will become critical to the investigation. So August 28th, I've been to Florida in August. It's absolutely awful. So I'm sure the decomposition of the bodies was severe. Was speeded up. Early July 2014, Brown family members or relatives in Florida helped Gregory, Margaret, Megan, and Adam move into the rented home. Relatives stay overnight in the home during the move-in period. Normally, relatives say Megan and Matto slept in separate rooms. While one relative was staying, Megan Brown and Adam slept in a shared bedroom with their son, though they slept on separate mattresses. Unknown dates, Megan Brown gets a job bartending at the Fisherman's Shack, a local pub, and there she meets Nick Leonard. Neighbor Ryan McCann accidentally locks himself out of his house, so Matos uses bobby pins to pick his lock. He said, quote, it was easy for him to pick the door. With bobby pins. Mm-hmm. August That's 14th. That's not easy. Right, right. August 14th, Megan Brown calls 911 to report she's being threatened or harassed by a female. Police don't generate a complaint or investigation because Megan Brown couldn't provide hard details about the third party exchange. Police advise her on how to handle the situation should occur in the future. A pretrial deposition deposition makes it unclear whether the call was recorded. The identity of the alleged harasser was never determined. Uh, uh, Sunday, August 24th, uh, Margaret Brown's father speaks with her for the last time before she's killed. Wednesday, August 27th, Nick Leonard is believed to have been the person who called a Verizon store in the Wichita, Kansas area to complain that a former romantic interest who lived in Wichita and who worked for Verizon may have been hacking into his accounts. Megan Brown reports to work that same day, and then Megan and a co-worker, Tanya, go out after work. Thursday, the next day, Early morning hours, Matos repeatedly tries to call Megan Brown. 5 to 5.30 a.m., Megan Brown is estimated to return home after a night out with co-worker Tanya. 6.07 a.m., Megan Brown places the first of two 911 calls. call, This call was disconnected for unknown reasons. Operators try to call back several times as per procedure, but got her voicemail. Four minutes later, at 6.11 a.m., Megan Brown places the second of two 911 calls. During the 11-minute call, Brown is heard sobbing while reportedly that Matos pushed her against a wall, held a knife to her throat, threatened to kill her. Jurors heard the call. Defense attorney successfully convinced the judge to edit out portions of the call pertaining to Matos's ethnic background as possible prejudice. Brown said Matos fled the house when their son woke up. Police investigate investigate for approximately an hour and a half. At 7.49 a.m., same day, starting at this time, Matos made approximately 200 calls to the, her cell phone, both Megan's and Margaret Brown's. Oh, my. Prosecutors said later during opening statements that Matos called Megan Brown 
some 120 times between the 27th and the 28th. So you have Matt Toast, and then you have her boyfriend's ex. Mm-hmm. So you got it on both sides. Yep. Yeah. And then he's, to me, him calling the mother means he's very angry with the mother. You know what I mean? Like she's an enemy too. Blame the mother for something. At 8.30 a.m., and this is approximate time, Megan Brown speaks with friend Tanya Carlson. Megan tells Carlson that Matos had been acting crazy, that she had never seen him act this way, and that she was in fear Matos might kill her. Megan also tells Carlson she is afraid to go to work out of fear Matos would take their son. 904-907, Nick Leonard calls 911 to report that Megan Brown has been attacked. A deputy agent responds thinking it was a new attack, but it wasn't. So he called the police after he saw probably what happened to Megan. At 9.10 a.m., Megan, Gregory, and Margaret Brown speak with a a deputy at their home regarding the aggravated assault. At 12.02 p.m. to 12.07, Gregory Brown purchased a spark plug and a spark plug tool with his credit card. He was wearing a white t-shirt and plaid shorts. His body was later discovered wearing what are believed to be the same clothes. Oh, At an unknown time, neighbor Ryan McCann says Gregory Brown set up a table and chairs on his back porch. Brown tells McCann that Megan would be having a party with friends after work. At 2.30, Detective Krause speaks with Nick Leonard via telephone about an unrelated case. At 3, Margaret Brown begins her shift at the local convenience store. 3.09, Megan fails to report to work. So she called her boss and tells him that she's scared and how she believed Matos was going to kill her. The boss is the last person authorities can confirm spoke with her. But did he call the police? I mean, what? For what? You know what I mean? Like, what are they going to do? She's, I mean, she's been she attacked. She's scared and he might kill her. And I think maybe a police car, you know, in front of the house might have been a good idea. But again, you know, 2020. You can't do that at forever, yeah. though. Something's yeah. bound to happen. You got two nut exes. Yep. But one's in Wichita, so they're not too concerned about that one. This one is a big concern with that. But the mother's at work. Mm-hmm. She's so that at tells work. me she couldn't have got killed the same time as Megan. At 412, Matos makes his final call to Megan, according to police affidavit. Um, and they said that the final attack occurred at about 3 p.m. So I'm not sure why there's a final call to her if he, you know, did the final attack. Anyway, maybe to cover it up and oh, yeah. say that he, he called her because yeah. he couldn't yeah, get a hold of her. Or- at 6 p.m., neighbor Ryan McCann loans Gregory Brown a ratchet. So this is at 6 p.m. That couldn't have been the last. Oh, final contact. I'm sorry. Okay, final contact, not attack. Okay. At 6 PM, the neighbor sees, uh, loans Gregory Brown, a ratchet. Uh, Brown needs the ratchet to work on a spark plug to his RV's generator. Brown never returned the ratchet. At some time, Margaret Brown's father says he tried to call her several times, but he couldn't get anybody. At 1110, Margaret Brown leaves work at the convenience store. She heads home investigators believe her drive home would have taken approximately 15 minutes. So at 1145 to midnight, approximate, a man walked out or a man out for a walk. hears three gunshots in the neighborhood. Investigators believe four bullets were fired, but one is believed to have missed on Friday. The very next day at 1230 AM neighbor, Ryan McCann sees Matos at the Brown home, the murder scene. He's out of breath and sweaty. 
he comes over and strikes up a conversation. At unknown times, Matos posts some of the Brown family property and per, uh, purebred dogs for sale on Craigslist. Oh, my gosh. Again, dumb. Uh-huh. And then the neighbor asks about the Browns another time. At 2 p.m. the next day, Craigslisters approach Matos about purchasing what was to believe to be the Brown family television. He refused to let the purchasers into the home, and he offers to bring the television outside for inspection. They leave, assuming it's broken. At an unknown town... At time, Megan Brown fails to report to work. At 3 p.m., Margaret fails to report to work. At 4.15, Craigslisters purchase four of Margaret Brown's dogs. At 4.30, a Craigslister purchased another one of the dogs. At some point, Matos had pizza delivered to the murder scene. At 7, neighbor Ryan McCann says Adam Matos approaches him to ask what he'd been doing. McCann, the professional captain, had been out fishing from 10 to about 7. At 11.48 p.m., Matos drives a brown family van to Walmart and buys a shovel, the same one that had maggots on it later. Saturday, the neighbor started smelling something strange in the neighborhood. He believed something was dead, but he didn't think it was them. But probably an animal or, right. You know. Sunday at 6.30, neighbor returned home from the fishing trip uh, on his boat. When he returned, Matos came over, asked what he and others were doing, and asked to share a beer. Matos asked McCann about any security cameras in the area out of the blue. On September 1st, which is Labor Day in 2014, Matos asked neighbor Ryan McCann to give him a ride to the bank to cash a check, but they were closed, so they didn't go, obviously. Matos tells McCann he has a flat tire and he asks for a ride to do some grocery shopping. He then tells the neighbor that the Brown family had flown to West Virginia to take a vacation. McCann observes the smell of decomposition in the neighborhood has already started to dissipate. And by 4.32, Matos orders pizza from Papa John's in Hudson, Florida. It was delivered to the murder scene. The delivery driver tells authorities that Matos paid with victim Margaret Brown's debit card. Also, the delivery driver saw the um, Tristan. Oh, he did see him. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, September 2nd, because they were killed the 28th. So now we're at uh, the 2nd. Neighbor uh, Ryan McCann took him to the bank at 522. He had another delivery order of pizza, and this time he paid in cash. But the driver says a foul order odor was coming from the Brown family residence, and at this point he didn't see the child again. At 6 p.m., neighbor Charles Smith reports seeing Papa John's deliver the pizza to the Brown home, and he recalls the night and the time because he has a social meeting on the first Tuesday of every month at 6. Now we're to the third. Mm. 7 a.m., neighbor Sharon Mann says a man matching Matos's description was spraying water in the garage and sweeping the water outside the garage door. Investigators later found blood, and the Brown family vehicle soaked with blood inside the garage. Matos approaches neighbor Ryan McCann, asks him for a beer, and then asks to go to the bar. McCann is hungry, so they choose to go to a lo- local bar and grill. From 7.30 to 8, McCann and Matos leave to go to the bar and grill. They play three to five uh, games of pool. Matos is bad at it. McCann wins every time. An older woman approaches McCann and tells him to get rid of Matos. The woman says, I'm a 60-year-old woman, and he doesn't need to be talking to me like that. 
So oh, I thought that was interesting. interesting. Yeah. So he told Mattos to leave the you know lady alone. Talking to her how I wonder in a sexual manner or I don't just no. It doesn't say cruel or. I mean, I don't why know. would you talk to an older woman like? Obviously, he said something that offended her. I mean, really offended her. So Mattos, at first, he's very loud, you know, and he asked McCain what his problem was. But then he changed gears. He apologized, and at this point, McCain thinks he's probably drunk. He eventually gets into the women's bathroom, despite it having a pink door and being labeled, and he once again gets caught, and this time he's sleeping in there. McCann goes into the woman's room, retrieves him, and takes him home. Later that evening, Matos asked to go out again, and he said no. Now we're to Thursday. This is September 4th. At 9.45, Linda Thomas, Megan's grandmother, calls the Pasco County Sheriff's Office to request a welfare check. The family hadn't been heard of since uh, August 28th. They respond. They discovered the bodies. They discovered the crime scene. They arrive. They take them. And then on Friday, September 5th, shortly after midnight, Matos asks a bus terminal security guard when the first bus is scheduled to leave. The guard tells Matos the first believes after 6 a.m. and directs him to a nearby hotel. Tampa police find him a few blocks from the bus terminal. Well, hang on a minute. If they were all dead, how's he going to the bar, going to a bus station, doing all this? Where's Tristan? With him. So here's... Oh, he took him with him everywhere. To the bar, too? No. That's a good question. What did he do with Tristan when he went... Oh, that would be awful. Because he's going all over the place, and none of that says that the son was with him. Well, yeah, the the pizza delivery saw him with him. One time. But he went to a bar, he played pool This is awful. So... The point of reading the timeline was basically this guy lived in their house for oh, days yeah, the after bodies. he killed them with the bodies, yeah, right? Yeah. And here's what's also crazy. His son is in there too with the bodies, knowing his dad killed him. So that's a good question. If he's going out and doing all this, is Tristan literally being left alone in the house with the dead bodies? He had to be. Mm. Depends where the bodies were. Weren't they in a bedroom? Do you know? Well, yeah, later, because we'll get to that. But I don't know if at this point, because he's washing blood and stuff out of the, you know, van. But where's the kid? Right. You know he was not going to take the kid to anybody to have him watch no. him. So no. he had, had to be in there locked He had up, to be in there locked in a room. Or maybe drugged. Yep. Something. Wow. I didn't even think a about child that. with like, well, there's lots of things. Medicine. Over the counter, NyQuil. I mean, lots of things. Or he's all over the place. Maybe he put him to bed thinking he would sleep the rest of the night and then went out and partied. But still, that was so risky. Yeah, but he's autistic. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know people that have autistic children, but... I mean, I don't know. Would they sleep all night? I mean, do you have to give them medicine? I don't know. I don't know. Because, yeah... But the whole idea is, again, a poop bird, because you've got this kid that you literally annihilated his entire family in front of him, and then you leave him alone so he can go party? He probably did leave him alone, because anyone that would sit there and kill four people, Wow! and there's more to it, which you'll come to, Yeah. um, I could see him leaving a child. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Mm. It's obvious that he's wanting to... um, you know, get out of town. 
basically. Right. right. Now they, they arrest him. That's where we're at. Well, here's what happened inside the house. Shortly after the 911 call, Matos left, and then he began sending Megan more than 100 threatening calls and text messages in the next 12 hours. He was threatening to come back and finish her off. Megan called her new boyfriend, Nick, to come over with a gun to help protect everybody. Matos did return to the property, and he staked the place out, and he was aware that Nick was there. Matos waited until the final family member returned home, Maggie, Megan's mom. When Maggie arrived home from work, he attacked her in the garage viciously with a hammer. He hated her. He then tied her up and put a plastic bag over her head to make sure she'd die. That's terrible. Like a slow death. That's why I think he hated Maggie. I think he hated the mother. So, okay, let me get this straight. This could be wrong. He... He waited for each one to come mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. so he killed one. The mother first. As they came home, mm-hmm. and he waited and then killed the other. So Megan... Because I don't think he could have overpowered Megan them all and all once. them were in the house. Already the did. only one that was gone... Uh-uh. They were alive. He killed the mother first. Well, how did he detain them all and Nick? They didn't know he was there. He staked out the place oh, when he, he saw hiding. the mom. Yep, he came oh. out, attacked her with a hammer in the garage, and they had no idea. No idea. So he waited to kill her on purpose. Crazy. He wanted her dead. Uh, so That he, seems where his hatred was directed. Yes. He then entered the home, and he went upstairs. He went to Megan's room and found her and Nick inside. He immediately attacked Nick and started wailing on him. Nick tried to defend himself, but he had 21 strikes to his head with the hammer. Oh. Matos got Nick's firearm and turned on Megan. Megan took off running with Tristan to the master bedroom where her daddy was. Greg was trying to load a weapon in the closet before Matos got there, and he was only able to get one bullet loaded. Matos shot him twice, killing him before he could. He turned to Megan, who is still holding her son, I'm sure. He was at least in the room. And shot her in the face, her left eye, to be exact. He then made himself at home among the victims with Tristan. He put out an ad on Craigslist to sell all of their stuff, including several of the dogs that Maggie had bred for $50 each. He had pizzas delivered, talked with neighbors, told them the family moved, you know, basically just hung out. Had fun. Yeah. Assaulted, obviously, older ladies. And he was tired from all of that work and fell asleep in a woman's bathroom. Right. When authorities arrived to check on the family and knock on the door, he took out or took off out the back way with Tristan. So he was in the house with Tristan when the cops arrived. And he went through the neighbor's backyards, stole a canoe, paddled to the other side, hopped in a cab, and went to Tampa where he is captured and charged with four counts of capital murder. They could have charged him with more. I'm sure they did eventually. Right? I don't know. Kidnapping. Probably. I'm sure. I mean, how you what is it? How you treat a body? Um and he, yeah, corpse, yeah. yeah. He decided to testify his own in trial. And that to me is someone that is so narcissistic. He thinks he can actually convince everybody that he didn't do this. So arrogant. And his defense was self-defense. Listen to this. According to you, you've been attacked, right? People are just trying to kill you, right? Asked the state prosecutor. 
Yes, at that time, I felt like my life was in danger. Matto said Nicholas Leonard first attacked him in the bedroom, put his hands around his throat, and then pulled out the gun. He claims he armed himself with a knife off the dresser while they were tussling. Matto says he stabbed Leonard with the knife three times. So Nick had him around the neck with his hands. Which, no. And was able to pull a gun out also. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay, then. Matto said he stabbed him with the knife three times, and then he claims that Gregory and Megan came into the room, and then him and Greg, and that Gregory Brown had a gun. At that point, Megan came in the room with Gregory and said, "Shoot him, Dad! Shoot him!" But Matto said, "Matto said on the stand." Matto's claims Brown tried to fire, but the gun jammed. Then he said he was able to wrestle the gun from Leonard, and he fired the weapon. I have fired weapons that jam. They don't just shoot after. You have to clear the jam. And there was only one bullet that he got in the gun. So that's BS. Uh, he said he had a wrestle of the gun. He fired the weapon. He Then Matos claims that Megan and Gregory ran out of the room, headed towards the master bedroom to get what he believed was another gun to shoot him. He said he followed them and he shot Gregory from behind. As I shot him in the back, he was going to turn with his weapon in his hands, he said. So he fired another shot in the chest. He claims that he then fired towards Megan but missed. He said the bullet hit the wall, ricocheted, and then struck her. In the head. All this going on and all these guns, guns and he disarmed everybody. Mm-hmm. He must be like. Especially a man that was choking him and grabbed a gun at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. You know, I think he's like that um, that movie Taken, Taken 1, oh, 2, yeah. and 3. Yeah. Just very efficient, you know, at fighting off bad guys. And he really thought and so arrogant they would believe what he was saying. Ricocheted off the wall and, and struck right her right in the right eye. Through the eye. He claims. And all this time, that poor child. Yes, saw it all. Saw all that. Oh. He boy. claims that he attacked Margaret Brown with a hammer when she got home later from work. He said that he felt his life was in danger. Prosecutor said his story and his timeline didn't add up. Danger from what? Did she have a weapon also? Right. He didn't say that. So then the, the prosecutor goes, okay, so the story you've just told this jury, you've had three years, more than three years. And the entire time of watching the evidence come by in this trial to come up with the story that you just told, right? Well, it's the truth. He had three years to come up with a good story. Yeah. And that's what he came up with. <laughs> Again, they're not smart, but they're lucky. So here's the question. How on earth does he even think anybody can believe him? It's so ridiculous. Well, okay. So not in his defense. That's not the word to use, but I have... Listen to cases and seen them on TV where juries have believed some real bad stories. Right, right. Bad stories. But this is kind of, I mean, the guy choking you and then he pulls the gun would have to have like four arms. Right. Uh, That's just ridiculous. Now, here's why I think they believe they can get away with it because he had for so long. I think he had conned this entire family. Oh, sure he did. And I truly believe that he thought he could convince the jury. The prosecutor asked why he never called the police if it was self-defense. Why did he throw the murder weapons into the canal at the rear of the house? He said, well, his phone was dead and he didn't want weapons to be a threat to others. He also To others? Mm-hmm. Of course, everybody's dead, so I don't know what threat they could be except maybe to Tristan. He also couldn't explain why he chose to dispose of the bodies if it was self-defense. He wanted to spare his son any more trauma. Well, wait a minute. He tried to dispose twice. Mm-hmm. 
dig in a hole, mm-hmm. then put in them in the car. Mm-hmm. To spare his son. And spare his son, and then putting them on top of each other. But that's to spare his son after he shot his mom in the face. No, no, no it ricocheted. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot That's that ridiculous. small detail. That's a sarcastic laugh she just made. It yes. wasn't a funny laugh. It's just so ridiculous that he would think that the jury would believe this. So then the prosecutor, because, you know, this is capital murder. And in Florida, like Texas, mm-hmm. they kill them there. Mm-hmm. And the prosecutor at one point said, you understand we're trying to kill you, Mr. Matos. You understand that. What That's was his response? crazy. Nothing. He was found guilty. But here's where, if you're already angry, I'm going to just throw you over the edge. Don't even tell me. I think I know. Don't say. One juror refused to vote for execution. So he got life in prison without parole. Don't they ask you, though, in death penalty states? Yes. Do you believe in the death penalty? I'm going to be straight up, and this may make people mad, but I believe in the death penalty. A hundred percent. I think that it, you have to have overwhelming evidence. I'm sure there have been plenty of people that have gotten the death penalty that shouldn't have. Oh, yeah. And, and some are on death row that are yes. innocent. This guy obviously did Obviously it. was not. So this one cases juror, I do too. And I used to didn't, I used to did not believe in the death penalty. You know. You're nice. I yeah, might kill but him. But now, yeah, you do. And quickly. <laughs> But now this on instances guy, like that? Yes. If there are murderers that deserve it, this is one of them. So I don't know why that one juror voted no. But listen to what the judge said after that. That means there was one person on the jury that felt enough sympathy mercy for you that they decide you do not deserve the death penalty addressing Matos in court. If there's ever a case that I have ever heard that people would have decided, quote, that death was appropriate, this is probably it, the judge said. And I don't think the jury hears that part. Matos, I think after they give the verdict, they leave, right? I don't know. I think probably. they do. Because if but I was a juror dismissed. and heard that, mm. and the judge said that, I'd, I'd feel horrible. Right. But well, you probably I should. Mean, yeah, I probably should. Matos made a pathetic attempt to show remorse. I would just like to apologize to the family of the victims, he said in court. He's shouted down by Aaron Brown, Megan's angry older brother. And the judge finally gives Matos the harshest punishment allowed by law. Based on the decision of this jury, I sentence you to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But her most moving words are reserved for the littlest and the most innocent survivor, and that's four-year-old Tristan, who is now being raised by his late grandmother's family. He will grow up without a father because he will know his father murdered his mother and murdered his grandparents. Part of the deal that was made requires that Tristan's adopted mother send a picture of the boy to Adam in prison until he's 12. Why? I don't know. Why would a judge make that kind of ruling? I have no idea. He just sat right there and said that he deserved the death penalty. Right. Now, I... Because... I don't understand that. That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't. And I want to read a little bit because I researched some more on um, this Matos guy. And he has a criminal record that dates back to his days in Parkland High School. And I'm just going to kind of scour through this. But uh, let's see. Well, it's probably something he didn't broadcast, though, to the family or, you know, her. I I can't believe I'm still stuck on that. He gets to see the picture. Right. 
So while attending Parkland uh, High School, he lived on Murray Street in the Orfield section of North Whitehall Township with his mother. Now, she lives in California now. It's not clear um, as far as like his uh, court records and things when he actually moved with them to Florida, but eventually we know that he did. Um, oh, um, on the show, I believe he moved when they did. Okay. They all went together. Okay. I think. That's what I remember. But listen to this. He was at Lehigh Valley Hospital when Megan, uh, with Megan Brown on October 6, 2009, when she gave birth to you know Tristan. And one of the guys that knows him said that he signed the birth certificate as a father, and then Brown named uh, his son after him. And they all, everybody knew that it was his biological father. But when they got back together, he wanted a DNA test. Like they had broken up a little bit, and then he wanted a DNA test test to make sure that was um, his son. Just to aggravate her? Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see if there was anything else. Uh, Mm. And this guy knew them. Matos first entered the criminal criminal justice system in the Lehigh Valley as a juvenile in 99 when he's placed on probation for possession of marijuana. So that's not, you know, I mean, most kids at at some point had that. A few months later, he was charged as a juvenile with two counts of auto theft. His juvenile record became public when he was sent to a juvenile detention facility near Harrisburg for eight months for felony burglary. So there's how he knew to use bobby pins to get into a house because he had gone on a two-month long crime spree in his neighborhood. Police estimated that he stole 26,000 worth of goods. Wow. I I know, but I have heard that Bobby Penn's doing that is extremely hard. He had to be really, really so good at he it. he had to. And then he also has another arrest on simple assault and trespassing charges. It seems that he broke into the apartment of an Allentown woman that he had dated 18 months earlier. Oh. So when he returned home with a male friend, or she did, he attacked the man before stealing the woman's cell phone and keys. Uh-huh. He was also arrested four more times between 2008 and 2010 on charges of retail theft, drunk driving, and harassment. So that's that's very interesting. He definitely then had this background. Here's my question. Juvenile records are not public. No. Did anyone know did her family know did megan megan's family know now it's not to say that just because someone has a criminal record that they're going to end up not annihilating a family but his, right? uh, his escalated and i don't think they knew but the fact here's what gets me that he waits 18 months and then breaks up into a uh, breaks into an ex's apartment that is obsession that's him sitting there thinking about it getting angrier and angrier to where finally he breaks in and you know it was to terrorize her he probably would eventually have killed her absolutely but i don't think they knew about the record because when you date someone i mean who looks up their record i would suggest to look up a record i would but back then when this happened 2000s 2000 i don't know i know at one time you couldn't look up anybody's record it was considered you know that's a privacy yeah i 
And again, you don't want people to live in fear. Well, that's not fear. It's cautious. Be cautious. Yeah. It's Try like, to be safe. you know, 98% of people on Facebook lie. They'll right. either put their picture from like years ago that they no longer look like. And dating apps do yeah, the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. And so I think in today's society with such ease of access, you know, but again, looking at the red flags, mm-hmm. obviously the relationship was not good to start with, it appears, because it wasn't long before they started having problems. And to be honest, sometimes your gut and red flags are is all you have because you're going on these sites and meeting people, you you have no idea who they are. Well, remember how I said she had to be scared? And she said, I'm afraid that if I call the cops, it's going to make it worse. Like that right. was, she was that scared. Well, listen to this. I had to scour for, I don't know how long to find this bit of information. Pro, uh, Matos was prone to violent outbursts. Tristan ran up to his room at one time and said that daddy had hit him. Oh, there were numerous times family members had to step in between Matos and Megan during fights. Listen to this one account from Linda Thomas, Megan's grandmother. One time, a fight between Megan Brown and Matos surrounded uh, while Matos was cleaning. That's kind of a weird statement. Cleaning the Brown family motorhome when he was supposed to be watching TB. Uh, which is Tristan. Thomas said Gregory Brown was the one who asked Matos to clean the motor home, but it's unclear if it was the same instance or occurrence which led to the fight. They're not sure. But during one fight between Brown and Matos, Matos raised his voice as if it was coming from his bowels, Linda Thomas said. And it was, quote, an attempt to bring all your energy into your voice, and it was enough to frighten me, she added. Everyone present ran to separate Matos and Megan Brown. So he's yelling at her so loud that it was like coming from inside him. That's how mad he was. That's rage. Unfortunately, Linda later encouraged them to reconcile for the sake of Tristan, but many of the fights were about their different parenting styles. Megan was protective of Tristan and Matos was the disciplinarian. So that's a control, right? Right. He's hit his boy. There are always patterns control, rage, minor to major physical abuse and jealousy somewhere. It's going to be somewhere uh, in these type of volatile relationships. And it's hard when you're in the relationship to see how dangerous it is. There were problems before they moved to Florida. They escalated once they were there. This was a kind, generous family who prized family more than anything else, and that desire to have Tristan's father in their lives, even to the point of having him move with them, led to their demise. Sometimes being nice is too nice, especially yeah, when you see stuff like I that. I understand the family unit, but the aunt, all these people run because he was raging to help her, but yet still wanted them mm-hmm. together. Sometimes those are just flags you can't ignore. I mean, I mean, like, I mean, what are they thinking? Oh, this is going to be just the one time that he's going to rage like that. So get back together for your son's sake. It's never a good idea no. to get back or try to change someone with a child or. And it and, happened and repeatedly. Back, yeah. And you go back for your kid's sake and they see that abuse. Um, physical, mental. And I can't imagine what her grandmother must think 
because, you know, like you're saying, it don't encourage people no. to stay with someone that is no. that full of rage. You know, the chances of them maybe killing them is slim. You know, it doesn't it happen is. tons. But you never know. You no. never know. Is this one where it could happen? A lady that I've mentored that her husband is a narcissist, right, psychopath. Right. I'm like, you know, I mean, obviously I'm of, you know, the Christian faith and I mentor her in that direction. But I also told her, don't take your trash out at night. No. Don't let him in your new house. And guess what? He broke through the his uh, her two daughters and got in her house when she was out of town. Upset them so much because they knew she wouldn't want him in there. So I told her, I, I think he could be dangerous. And so just be aware, you know, because some of the things he's asked the kids make me think he could be dangerous. So it's, you know, you cannot mess with these people. And here's a final thought, at least for me. And that is your strengths overextended become weaknesses. You value family so much that you're wanting, you know, them to work it out for the sake of the little boy, right? That strength of loving family and making family a priority was definitely overextended. And again, I'm not blaming the victims. You're in it. You don't know. But here's the deal. You cannot, because you value something, go so far that you're blind to what's happening. Exactly. I agree. A hundred percent. And and that's what happened. And, you know, her relatives that that encouraged her to go back, how they must feel. Mm -hmm. I mean... You know, and the bad thing, too, when you go back like that for the family's sake, I mean, it's not a bad idea if you have a normal person. Right. When you know this guy's not normal, it, you know, makes you wonder, your kid is seeing all this stuff for years. And was him? How's he going to grow up? Yeah. I mean, that's going to be in his little mind, especially autistic, in his mind the rest of his life. It's horrible. Not that it's the mother's fault at yeah, all or anybody's fault. Yeah. You just, sometimes you do. You're right. You love the family unit so bad that you're blinded by everything else because you want that one thing so bad. Yeah. And it's never, it doesn't ever no. work. It's, it never works, ever. And it, and his, by his record, it, it escalates. Yes. I yes. Mean, just, and I wish that careful. she would have known about that. I wish she would, especially him breaking into the apartment. That's not normal 18 months no, later. No, it isn't. Not 18 months no. later. No, that's obsession. I wonder what the trigger for that was. I think he probably had been plotting and thinking and planning. All those months. All those months. He doesn't seem very patient, though. He killed four people in a very short time. Well, because yes. Because he came in early. Yes, he did, but he waited for her to get home. But not 18 months. No, but he had been with them for a while, and I think uh, her moving on pushed him over the edge. I don't think he could handle it. That was the trigger for sure. Yeah. So the moral of the story and why we always say at the end, be smart, be rude, and don't be a victim, is sometimes you just have to get rude. Sometimes you have to say, no, you need to get out. Um, And not be so nice. And not be so nice. Yeah. Or trusting. It can save your life. Wow. Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? Ah!